Revelation chapter 20, the millennium. Well, if you've been here uh, throughout the, the course, you might remember, I think it was two weeks ago, I put a chart like this on the, the, the whiteboard, and we just kind of talked through it. If this is your first time seeing it, I will briefly explain it now. So we've got the first coming of Christ symbolized by the cross, the second coming of Christ with this big arrow coming down. After the second coming is the eternal age. By the way, all views about the millennium um, end up here. That's why they're all Christian views, that for all time, Christ will reign. Everybody believes that. The question is the millennium, and how does that fit into all of this? So we've got the age eternal here at the end, sometimes called the final state. Um, you know, this is when the last judgment is, and when Satan gets bound and thrown into the uh, uh, lake of fire. Uh, throughout the church age, we've got um, several things. I've chosen to chart two of them that kind of characterize the church age. There's the spirit of Antichrist at work, that is um, false teaching within the church, pulling people away from Christ, and tribulation going on. Now, if you saw this before, uh, you may have wondered back then, I might have even said it back then, but w what it's missing is the millennium. Well, what it's missing is, is this thing that we just read about here in Revelation chapter 20. And twice, at least, it mentions a thousand years. One, that Satan is bound for a thousand years, and second, that Christ reigns for a thousand years. That's where it gets its name, millennium. Now, there are three historic views of the millennium. As you can see, man, my, uh, yeah, number two there on page one, three major historic views of the millennium. It's a little awkward to say three major views and then talk about four of them, but that's what I've chosen to do uh, this morning. Um, although I think my heading still stands, to be honest, um, and this is where some of my bias comes out, but the fourth view that I'll go over is one that is not a historic view of the church. It is a current view that many hold. And so we'll, we can talk about, we'll, we'll add that one as well. All right, so the first one is pre-millennial, uh, pre-millennialism. And um, it is pre-millennial because it believes that Christ's return will come before the millennium. All right, so it's gonna be return of Christ and then there'll be this thousand year reign of Christ. And premillennialists tend to see the thousand-year reign of Christ as a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. Um, there's a, as, as we go through this, you're going to want to refer to some charts at the back. So there in, in section six, you should have a chart uh, called premillennial, premillennialism, okay? And uh, so... I'm going to use words to describe the chart. Um, but what they add, essentially, is for the premillennial folks, the millennium happens right after the second coming, right here, this thousand years. All right? So here's a reign of Christ upon the earth. After that reign of Christ, Satan is released. There's kind of the last battle at that point. And then... After Satan is released and defeated forever, the final judgment and the eternal age begins. Okay? So, if 
If you had been ex excited about the second coming of Christ, um, you could still stay excited about the second coming of Christ because according to this view, he comes and he reigns for a thousand years. That is certainly better than now, right? That is a better state than we're in right now. Uh, and then the final battle where Jesus wins and we get ushered into the eternal age. So, big, big picture. This doesn't change where our hope is. We're still hoping in Jesus' return, but we're expecting slightly different things to happen when he returns, if you hold to this view. So, um, so during the church age, very much as we have drawn it, the, the um, church age continues as we know it. There will be a time of great tribulation and suffering at the end. In fact, if you're following your, your pre-mill drawing, it really flattens out here for a while at the end, and it's called the tribulation, all right? And normatively, premillennial folks are, are interpreting the scriptures a little bit more on the literal side, apocalyptic literature, rather than the symbolic side. So they're going to take the millennium to be an actual thousand years, and they're going to take the tribulation to be an actual seven years, typically. All right, I'm trying to, you know, describing a group of people that don't all agree with each other, but... <laughs> Generally speaking, they're going to see these things a little bit more literally. And so, whereas I've got this kind of just a, a, a slant here in a kind of unknown time, they would say, no, that's going to be a seven-year tribulation before the return of Christ. All right, so then during the millennium, what should be expected? Well, it's what we just read about, and Satan's influence is going to be greatly curtailed. Remember, it says that he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into a pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So Satan's influence is curtailed. Believers who have died are resurrected and reign with Christ. Um, unbelievers remain living upon the earth. And this is a, an interesting concept that we would have the physical bodily appearance. This is after the second coming. Christ himself reigning on a throne on earth with unbelievers. If such a thing is going to happen, it does show you the power of unbelief. Um, unbelief is not a, a failure to have enough evidence. It is a heart disposition that is opposed to God. Um, but Christ will, will reign upon the earth. Unbelievers will remain on the earth. Many will be saved. I think that's easy to imagine uh, that many would be, be saved if Christ is right there. Oh, got that wrong. Okay, going to follow him. I see how this is going. And then after the millennium, moving to page two, Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit. We'll uh, gather forces together against the Lord and will be defeated by Christ. And then there'll be the final judgment and the eternal state. All right? This is the premillennial view. Should I take questions? This is really dangerous. I don't think I can. Don't think I can. I want to get through ex explanation of all four views today, okay? So we can come back to questions and I will try to answer. Um, the second main view is postmillennial. All right, so one of the things that just makes this hard is you have to learn the language. I'm sorry, if I could name these things, 
I would pick nice and easy names for us to use, okay? Um, but post-millennial, that view is that Christ's return is after the millennium, all right? Post the millennium. So it would serve you to get that chart and look at it. All right, that's this chart right here, cleverly labeled post-millennial at the top. All right, so what do they think happens? Well, the post-millennial folks do believe that this is the church age, of course, but they think the church essentially is going to win. So over time, the gospel goes throughout the, the earth, and as the gospel goes throughout the earth, more and more people get saved, more and more cultures get impacted by the gospel, the salt and the light of the gospel does its work, and the world becomes, to use an expression, Christianized. And so you may have, and of course we do have, these kind of squiggly lines of persecution and difficulty, but as the world tends towards getting more Christianized, then that will begin to reduce. And so if this, this new line here can kind of be Ah, triumph of the gospel. All right. So, more and more people are being saved. The gospel's going throughout the ends of the earth. And so, at some point, the millennium begins. It's not that Christ comes physically to reign, but rather he's reigning through his church, which now has such universal... Um, uh, acceptance and influence that really uh, it's as though Christ himself is, is here reigning. And you can imagine this. There have been kind of breakouts of this in different cultures at different times. Cultures that were so influenced by the church that many of the evils of the world were kind of pushed back. And so perhaps what they would say is that over time, we would expect to see more and more of this. And so, at some point, the millennium begins. At some point of sort of victory of the gospel, the millennium begins. And then after that, Christ's second coming and all the other things that we've talked about. Uh, Wayne Grudem summarizes it helpfully. In, uh, in here, according to this view, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that a larger and larger proportion of the world's population will be Christians. As a result, there will be significant Christian influence on society. Society will function more and more according to God's standards, and gradually a millennial age of peace and righteousness will cover the earth. The millennium will last for a long time, not necessarily a literal thousand years, and finally, at the end of this period, Christ will return. All right. Post-millennialism. Number three, ah-millennialism. Forgive me for the terms. All right. What is an atheist? An atheist is somebody that doesn't believe in God. So when you put the word ah in front of something, it means not. So an ah millennialist, then you would expect to not believe in the millennium. And you'd be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's a horrible name. I think really it was named by those 
characterizing amillennialists rather than those who would hold the view. Okay? Those that hold the view believe in a millennium. All right? So what do they believe? Well, they believe that, you know, during the church age, you've got some persecution. During the church age, you've got the spirit of Antichrist at work. But their accent is on the work of Christ on the cross. And they would say when Christ came, and they would say rightly, everybody agrees with this, but they put more emphasis on it. When Christ came on, on the cross and, and suffered that death, in his death was his victory. And he um, uh, overcame the principalities and powers. And you could see that breaking through in his ministry as he went and cast out demons here and there and over there and over there. This had never happened before. Here was somebody on the earth who had power over the demonic. And what did Jesus say about that? He said, you know, nobody could do this unless you're able to bind the strong man. And he came and he did that. And in doing that, he ushered in then the millennial age. And so the amillennial perspective is that we are living in the millennium right now and that this is the age of Christ's reign and he's reigning through the church as the church proclaims the gospel throughout the world. All right, so up till... Christ coming on the cross, there was no evangelism. There, there was no taking the, the good news of Yahweh to the ends of the earth. The, the uh, knowledge of God was limited to one geographic region, one ethnic group primarily um, on the earth. But since then, the gospel is going forward to every nation. And so they would equate the church age with the millennium. And so they would also be post-millennial because they would believe that after the millennium, Christ returns, all right? So I don't like the term all-millennial all because it, it, it is a characterization of them that's unfair. Uh, they do believe in the millennium, just not in the same way as the literal terms that the premillennialists would believe in it with 1,000 years being exactly 1,000. Um. So if I could coin the term, and I would love to, but nobody's going to let me, um, I would call it now millennialism rather than amillennialism because I think that accurately states what it means. Okay, so the now millennial perspective. All right, fourth one, last one. I don't know. I'm not even going to try to draw it. Um, so dispensational terms dispensational premillennialism. Woo! All right. So this is a version of classic historic premillennial belief, but comes at it from a dispensational perspective. If, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we talked about dispensationalism is a way of seeing all the scriptures as divided up into different time periods. Um, I don't share this theology Christians do. It's not a pagan philosophy. It's a, it's a Christian way of reading the Bible. Um, but the, the, the competitive, two competitive ways are kind of dispensational and covenant theology. And I would be on the covenant theology side. So I, I don't agree with all of their starting points. And so not surprisingly, I don't agree with the end points either. All right. But they would have a 
desire to um, interpret apocalyptic literature much more literally than I would typically be doing. And so they would see things like in the Old Testament when there's a, a promised temple being promised to the Jews. They would say, well, then God's going to need to fulfill that temple. There needs to be a third temple built on planet Earth in fulfillment with God's promises. Now, I see that as being fulfilled in Christ and the church being built as the new temple of God. But they're still expecting another temple in physical Jerusalem that's going to be giving honor to God. Okay? So you can look at their, that chart here. Um, it is by far the most... Um, uh, complicated one, and just this chart has multiple different views associated with it. I do want to talk about it because this is probably the one you came in believing. This is the one I grew up believing. If Unless you grew up in a Reformed church, you probably grew up hearing this, okay? Uh, because it's just by far the most common in, in America right now. All right, this is the only one of the th- four views that believes in a rapture, as in the pulling up of God's people to heaven for a period of time before they return. All right, so this is the one that has the rapture associated with it. Um, And typically, the rapture happens before the tribulation. So if you look, you've got this little two-directional arrow. Everybody see the two-directional arrow on there, right? Jesus comes halfway down, gets his people, takes them back up. That's what that two-directional angle is. Uh, arrow is showing, all right? Halfway down, gets people, take them back up. And then they are there through the tribulation. Now, forgive me, but not everybody who holds to this view agrees on when the rapture is going to be. So you've got your pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib views. You heard about these views? Yeah, you have. All those views are on this one page. Okay, Uh, what I mean to say is all those views are just different views of this one position. Nobody else argues about that because nobody else believes in a rapture. So we're not trying to time the rapture, right? Um, And as I made clear before, I don't believe that there's gonna be a rapture as is understood here. But nonetheless, trying to understand when the rapture would be, is it before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? Those are all different things that are discussed here. Um, as you'll see, during the tribulation, uh, there would be a widespread conversion of the Jews. And then during the millennium, when Christ comes down, um, the, the converted Jews are now sort of, you'd say, again taking their place as a nation among the earth that is following God. And so they become a kind of important nation upon the earth, even as Christ and the church reign during that time. Okay. We did it. We got through the four. And I mean, I see people like, they are so ready to raise their hands. I'll start with Paul and we can move on to other questions. No, I just want to make, I would not seem to have that chart. I don't know if you do that. But. Um, there's a whole stack of them. Uh, just that chart? Yes. Oh, okay. Did everybody get this? Maybe, maybe, um, could, could, Travis, could you arrange passing it around? Oh, never mind. Christine is just on it, wants to do that. The reason you didn't have this chart is because I had to order a book about this perspective 
to really get it enough to draw the chart. Um, yeah, and that came in this week. So I had fun reading. <laughs> okay, um, I want to go through, um, I'm going to go through them again, and I want to talk about scriptural strengths and weaknesses of each of these views. And as I do, it'd be a great time for questions, okay? So we're going to start with historic premillennialism, classic premillennialism that has been believed by the church for a long time um, and is not of the dispensational variety, okay? So I'm on page three of my notes and we're referencing the premill diagram. What are the strengths of it? I think it interprets Revelation 20 in the most straightforward way. So, um, Revelation 20, we began by reading that. I mean, it really does say Satan will be bound for a thousand years. It really does say that Christ will come and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Um, if you were just to read that just straight up, I think you'd end up here most naturally. Um, the, uh, the other positions like the post-millennial view and the all-millennial view, they tend to see Christ's victory on the cross as the big deal, right? That's where he bound Satan. Um, I tend to agree with that, but I want to point out the weakness of that as well. If this is the millennium that we're in right now, it sure seems like Satan's very active. All right, there's, there's the weakness of the post-millennial view and the all-millennial view. Really? This is Satan bound? Boy, it must have been bad before. <laughs> you know? 12,500 mile chain. Yeah, 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 yeah. A really long chain. He can get over the whole earth. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we look at, um, is Satan bound right now? I would say, actually, I am going to fall here and say, yes, I do think that's what the scriptures say. However, I want to give the other side and say, he's clearly pretty active still. All right. So 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James 4, 7, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is clearly still at work during the church age. Everybody's got to reckon with that. I think that is a weakness of the post and now mill positions and a strength of the pre-mill position. They would say, yeah, that's because he's not bound right now. Uh, he's going to be bound during the millennium. That's why this isn't the millennium, okay? Um, weaknesses of this perspective, it banks a lot on Revelation 20. Um, now, it's good to build your, your theology on God's word, but I will say the only passage in scripture that clearly talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ is Revelation 20. And so um, they have taken that and rebuilt the whole chart based on that, that is a valid thing to do because it's God's word. Um, however, I think that when there's just one passage speaking of something, we just, we do need to be careful um, and interpret scripture with scripture. So um, I think they probably overly lean on that one passage. And I think it is possible to read Revelation 20 very differently than they read it. So, okay. So that's pre-mill. Let's talk pre-mill for a minute, all right? Um, 
Questions? Pres- questions on classic premillennial perspective? You gotta be kidding. <laughs> yeah, Jack. Uh, you had talked about the unbelievers reigning, um, like living here, that's right, not reigning, living here still simultaneously in the premillennial yes. view. Yes. Um, you mentioned a little bit of how the, sh- the power of unbelief, but mm-hmm. is there something too that that just doesn't seem to add up, possibly? Yeah, so his question is, does it really add up to have Christ reigning, physically reigning on earth with unbelievers running around at the same time? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It feels weird, but this is where I'd, I'd rather that the, the scriptures themselves guide us to what we believe. Like, if the scripture teaches it, we shouldn't say, well, that's weird. We say, okay, yes, Lord. You know what I mean? So I do think it's a little strange. It it would certainly seem very advantageous to turn to Christ if he's reigning upon the earth. Um, But I've got a strong theological category for folks persisting in unbelief, not because they don't have evidence, but because their heart is set against God. So so it it fits my theology, actually, to say, I, I could imagine that. It, see, it feels a little, little strange, but it would certainly highlight the, the, the heart bend away from God that is unbelief. So, yeah. Yeah, Ken. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about is for those who believe in the, a thousand-year reign, a literal thousand-year reign, mm-hmm. how do they, uh, uh, you know, the scripture from Second Peter 3 says, uh, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Right. So, and um, so, for me, I've got some difficulty with seeing the literal, saying an actual thousand years. So I'm just wondering, yeah. how, how do they reconcile that? So the question is reconciling this thousand years with other places in Scripture, like in Peter, where he says one day with the Lord is as of a thousand years, and all that we've been talking about regarding. Uh, reading apocalyptic li- literature symbolically. Um, this ultimately is why I can't get to a pre-mill position in my own understanding because it requires me to read the whole book of Re- Revelation with one lens, which is consistent and really works, of seeing numbers as symbolic of things. And then to kind of take that lens off, put on like I'm reading a history textbook and read Revelation chapter 20 like a history textbook, I think that is uh, that that it feels inconsistent to me to switch like that. Which, so I agree with what you're saying, um, but I do think, in fairness, the pre-mill folks tend to read the whole book of Revelation more literally as they go along, and so perhaps it feels consistent to them to do so. Yeah, Paul. So on on Jack's question, could not the, I mean. You could still have Christians. We talk about all the unbelievers that mm-hmm. Christ reign, but you could still have Christians and more people becoming Christians uh-huh. during the thousand, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Is right? I mean, that so the question is: During the literal pre-mill perspective, thousand-year reign of Christ, could there still be Christians on the earth? I think the answer is yes. So what they would see is the resurrection of the just of believers happening at Christ's return, and then all of us reigning with Christ through the millennium. So if you were a Christian coming up to the millennium, you're going to be reigning with Christ. 
if you became a Christian during the millennium, I suppose you're not reigning with Christ, but you're really glad that he's reigning uh, during that time. So, yes, there will be Christians, but they'll all be new. New within a thousand years, I suppose. So, okay. Yeah, John. You said something about Christians disagreeing. Are you saying within denominations? So is there a group of denominations that believe pre-mill more than other denominations? Oh, okay. So John's question is, uh, denominationally, where do people tend to stand on these things? That's a good question. Um, Yeah, I would say you're going to press me a little bit beyond my expertise here. So historically, we are a Reformed church. Reformed churches tend to be a-mill or post-mill, right? That's where Reformed folks tend to stand. Um, And I'll just say most others in the U.S. lately have tended to be pre-mill in their thinking. Um, I would actually be, as a Reformed guy, more inclined to believe in premillennial perspective than I am the post-millennial perspective, and I'll explain that to you guys in a little bit, but... I think that, that one's troublesome to me. But um, John Piper believes pre-mill, um, which is a pretty powerful name, at least around here, to use. So he's a pre-mill guy. Um, Wayne Grudem is a pre-mill guy. So uh, uh, MacArthur is a dispensationalist. Yeah. So I would be, I would love MacArthur. He's, he's a solid, he's a solid guy, but I, I don't really pay much attention to his uh, commentaries on the prophets or Revelation because he's just coming at it from a very different perspective. He's, uh, you might know more, he's the only reformed dispensationalist that I know of. Um, kind of a unique, unique one there. So, hmm, did I answer that okay? Yeah. yeah? So nobody really knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very unusual. So usually, um, I mean, you saw the list of references I recommended. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is going to be re- referenced for every Sunday school class we ever have. It's a, for sale in the bookstore. Um, but one of the things I tell you in there is, hey, his view on the millennium is not what I would believe. But he does a great job defending it, and I think he's a godly man, and it makes sense to try to understand, well, why does he believe that, you know? Um, and when John Piper is with him, those, I think that's the only thing I could possibly disagree with both of them on because uh, I, I respect those two guys quite a lot. Um, but when you get into just more historic Reformed folks, they tend to be more on the awe-mill and the post-mill side. So, yeah, James. Have your views on this changed since being a pastor, like in the last 10 years? Like, is this something that... You study, and it kind of, oh, I've, I've read this, and, you know, my view on this changed a little bit, because I think that sometimes people are like, well, I'm this now, this is my team, and I'm just going to fight for that team forever. Like, yeah. how, how does this work? So, thanks. So, the question is, has my, have my views on this changed since being a pastor? Do I have a s- strong sense of team uh, that I'm on? Um <clears throat> So I will tell you that most of my doctrinal grid was built at the pastor's college for Sovereign Grace. And um, I think they do a, a, a wonderful job doing that for folks. 
When we got to this class, they didn't attempt to give us a grid. In fact, what they did, much like how I've done it, there was a lot of teaching. Then we got to the millennium, and uh, Mickey Conley was our teacher. If, if you know Mickey, he's our regional leader. And uh, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do with the millennium. You guys are going to learn about dispensational pre-mill and try to convince us. You guys are learning post-mill. You guys are learning on-mill. You guys are learning classic pre-mill. That's your project for the week. We're having a debate on Friday. <laughs> and we came in. Everybody had to study their perspective and come in and present uh, scriptural support for their perspective. Um, and that was really all the guidance he gave. So um, I think Sovereign Grace has kind of worked hard to not um, overly define this. Knowing that folks we respect so much are on different sides, it really feels like, hey, there's, we fight for a lot of doctrine. Sovereign Grace is not wishy-washy when it comes to doctrine. There's a lot that the statement of faith has to say. I think this, I think it would be unwise to, to try to add something specific about the millennium to a statement of faith, um, as though we can be as sure about that as we can about other things in the statement of faith. So, so essentially, I don't feel a strong sense of team. I feel a strong sense of antipathy. Is that the right word? Hatred? Hatred's a little too strong. What's the object? I really don't like the dispensational perspective um, because in, as I consider it, it dethrones Christ in his work. I see his work as bigger. And so I'm very much on the covenant theology side and that makes me very against the dispensational pre-mill side. Um, and then I've seen just some... I think maybe the biggest change for me is I would have come out of the PC saying, I guess I'm all-mill or post-mill. I'm not really sure. That's what I thought. Um, I think now I'd be more in the I'm all-mill or pre-mill, and I'm less inclined towards the post-mill perspective. And I can try to explain more about why. Um, Let's look at the post-mill perspective together on page four. Um, Strengths and weaknesses. Um, the strength, this is a strength of post-mill and a-mill together, that the binding of Satan that we read about, they see as having been accomplished on the cross during his earthly ministry. Matthew 12, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Christ used binding of Satan language to describe the breaking in of his kingdom that he was ushering in in his first coming. Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So the, the great cataclysm happened on the cross. That was the, that was the great victory of Christ. Everything else is is sort of making good on what he purchased there. Um, so I do think this is a, uh, it rightly exalts what Christ did on the cross. And then Colossians chapter two, um, last sentence there, he disarmed the ruler's authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him and that on the cross. Um, so I really, I'm drawn to the post mill and on mill perspective because they see Christ's work on the cross as being the binding of Satan. 
And I think that actually accords just fine with what we see on earth today, where is Satan an enemy of the church? Absolutely. Do we have to be wary of him? Absolutely. Can he snatch you out of God's hand? Absolutely he cannot. Is he limited by the reigning Christ? He's absolutely limited by the reigning Christ. Can the gospel go wherever God wants it to go? Yes, it can, because all authority in heaven and on earth was given to Christ because of what he did on the cross. So I do think that there was a cosmic change that happened at the cross. It's one of the reasons I love the, the post-mill and the awe-mill perspectives, because it, it exalts what Christ did there. Um, so yes, Satan still has a measure of influence, but on a leash. Um, post-mill, um, they believe, of course, the kingdom of God will expand until Christ's return. They've got some good stuff to go with that. Um, uh, first of all, just the Great Commission, right? Commission the church to do that. Um, secondly, do you remember? We studied Daniel. Remember? Do you remember the, uh, remember the, the, the big statue guy with the gold head? Mm-hmm. Silver, bronze, feet of iron and clay. And then what happened? This stone, not cut with human hands, hit the statue at its feet. What did it do after that? It, it shattered the statue and then, do you remember? It became a mountain. It grew to fill the whole earth. That's what they say is happening. They say, okay, see, Christ comes and now slowly he, his power and influence is going to fill the whole earth. This is the scriptural support for what they believe. They, they see the, the church growing and growing and growing and growing. Christ's kingdom expanding and expanding. Um, that fits the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So it would see, you know, the mustard seed being planted in Christ's first coming and then that just growing to fill the whole earth. And similarly, the parable of the leaven, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. And so the leaven working its way through the whole loaf. And they would interpret this the whole loaf of the world. I tend to look at those two parables, by the way, and see the power of the kingdom in a person's life. You put the, the gospel mustard seed in someone's life and it takes over their life. Then necessarily a parable for how the all of time works, if that makes sense. But that's, that's how they see it. Okay, so weaknesses of post-mill, I think... Page five, seems to be too optimistic um, about the potential for saving the world. So if this is how things are going to be that the church takes over, I don't think that's at all obvious yet in the way things have gone. Um, Additionally, and more importantly, Matthew 7 seems to speak against this. Enter by the narrow gate. Gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. Gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So that, that does speak, seem to speak to a kind of timeless parable during the church age. Many will still choose destruction and few will find the path of life. And post-millennialists have to work against that parable, I think, to see the church triumphing in the way that they see it. Um, one of the reasons kind of non-theological that I step back from the post-mill perspective. If you're a post-millennial person, 
first of all, regardless of your view, I hope you're evangelizing. Right? I hope, I hope, like, they see it like, let's evangelize so that we can speed along the millennium. Okay. I don't know that we need the extra motivation to evangelize. But whatever. Like, let's all evangelize. But what they also necessarily put in is, is they see the church as necessarily involved in cultural transformation. Because it's the Christianization of the world, not just the evangelization of the world. And so we need to have Christian laws in all countries and these kinds of things. And I think that tends to take Christians out of our specific calling, which is to make Christ known, and, and tempts us strongly to be really engaged on a kind of political and cultural fights rather than staying in the lane that the Lord's really given us. I'm not trying to say Christians can't be involved in politics or can't be involved in those fights. Uh, we can be. Um, but the question is, is that inherently the call of the believer? I say the call of the believer is faithfulness to Christ and proclaiming the gospel. Um, it doesn't seem to me like there's a cultural transformation call. Certainly Paul knew nothing of it as he worked his way through the Roman Empire. He was evangelizing. He wasn't trying to change Rome. Evangelizing did change Rome. But it's, that, it's in that order. So, okay. The Amil perspective, strengths and weaknesses. Um, so the strengths, um, again, seeing that what the Lord did on the cross as the binding of Satan, I do think is a strength. It interprets Revelation 20 symbolically, which I'm inclined to do because that's how the rest of the book is being interpreted. Um, it sees Revelation 20 as part of the ongoing struggle, Christ's kingdom against the kingdom of darkness. And this kind of back and forth that's been ever since Christ first came. Um, I think it avoids the overly optimistic perspective that Post Mill has. Um, the weaknesses, I think I've already referenced this, but Revelation 20 is a, is, uses very decisive language to talk about the binding of Satan the lid being put over him and the chain and like really, really bound. And I think that it's a weakness uh, of this perspective that, yeah, it does seem to be more restrictive of Satan than we currently see. Also, Revelation 20 seems to speak of resurrection. And that's troublesome to the Amil folks because no, nobody believes there's been a resurrection already. So if the millennium's now, we should have seen a, a resurrection. So, conclusion. Um, I have room in my mind for all three views. I can see strengths of all-mill, strength of pre-mill, strengths to post-mill. Um, if I had to pick one answer under threat, I would go with the all-mill perspective. It is hard to go with an all-mill perspective with really planting my flag on any one of these when I can see weaknesses to each of them. It's just a reality. Like, oh, okay, but... What they're saying about that, that's a good point. I don't really have a counterpoint, but nor do I see a better solution to the problem than just to say, ah, this is kind of the best way I can see it. Um, but, and this is where I'd want to end, and we, we will have time for questions. My hope is not in the millennium one way or the other. It's in Christ. And that's what I would hope to leave us with, that, hey, yeah, there's this thing. It's the millennium. Uh, it's good. 
and Jesus is returning, all right? So, so this is our hope. So if all millennialism a little, 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 is right, <laughs> then that means we're in the millennium now, and we have the second coming to look forward to. And that's great. That's a hopeful perspective. If premillennial perspective is right, then we have the second coming to look forward to next. And then the millennium after that, which will be way better than now. If the post-mill folks are right, then this is exciting. We get to anticipate church growth and church growth and church growth and the Christianization of the entire world and then the return of Christ. And that sounds pretty awesome as well. And so we have a lot to look forward to regardless of these positions. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Finish what you started back on the cross. Okay. Is this what you would refer to as a second-tier issue? <laughs> I remember you talking about yeah. election as being a second-tier issue. Okay. And our salvation was not necessarily dependent on... Good. So the question is, is this a second-tier issue? My mom helpfully reminds me that I've called election a second-tier issue and things of salvation being a first-tier issue. So, yes, generally yes, I might nuance it a little bit more. I would, I would see the basics of the Christian faith, the Nicene Creed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to earth, suffered, died, resurrected, will come, will come again to judge the living and the dead. These are first-tier issues he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So those are salvific issues. Those are the only issues, by the way, that you need to grapple with and agree with to be a member of Mercy Hill. It's first-tier issues that define the requirements for membership. If you want to teach at Mercy Hill, you've got to agree on some second-tier issues as well. I'd put election in there, that God chose a people from before all time who would be saved, all right? Um, maybe the gifts of the Spirit I might put in as a second-tier issue. Honestly, I'd put this as a third-tier. Okay. The millennium, I'd put it as a third-tier issue. It's, it's even further out there of just, yeah, we're going to disagree. We're just, and maybe even, like for me, <clears throat> it took 14 years from the pastor's college to teach on this, and for 14 years I've kind of gone, ah, I don't really know where I am. I'm going to have to figure that out. So there's been a lot of study uh, over the past couple months so that I could stand here and say, yeah, I don't really know where I am. Um, <laughs> so that didn't change. Uh, so yeah, I'd probably put this at more of a kind of a tier three if we're doing, doing that. Um, tier one, we're gonna, this is going to be in the sermon today. Tier one, Christians need to fight over. There's not, we're not to tolerate heresy in the church. Christians should rightly fight over tier one issues and require that church members believe these basics of the faith. Or it's not Christianity. You can go believe what you want. Don't call it Christianity in this church, right? So those issues are really important. They are, uh, those, those are the things around which we have unity and they are required for unity. Unity without that is not Christianity. It's something else, just 
unified something else, you know? Second tier issues we can have disagreements on. Third tier issues we can have disagreements on. Um, second tier issues are probably good issues that just go ahead and, and have different churches. You know, like whether you believe in the ongoing gifts of the spirit or not, there's great Christians that believe on either side of that. It would be hard to be in the same church necessarily, believing differently. So let's have two different churches and let's be about loving Jesus in our two different churches. I think there's a, I think that's a good and right way to go about it. And third tier issues you talk about once every 14 years in Sunday school. (laughs) So, yeah. Great question. I like that. That was the right question for us. I've got time for one more. Ivy. Right. Yeah. So Ivy's question is, is there a fifth option? Kind of a combination of these? (laughs) That is a fantastic question. I would say yes, and that's what I believe. Um, <laughs> and, and here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. If you were to have polled the religious leaders 10 years before Jesus came, tell me about the coming of the Messiah. They could have gone to all kinds of texts, told you all kinds of true things about the coming of the Messiah, but they lacked the divine perspective on all of that that only came when Christ actually came, which is why John the Baptist was so confused at the coming of Christ. He could see him, say, but, but I don't know, are you really him? You know? Um, and, I, and, and that's where I think, you know what? Probably, I, I say it jokingly, but you're probably exactly right. Mm-hmm. I think that when the Lord reveals this, we're going to go, oh, the all-mill guys did have that right, and the pre-mill guys have that right. And the, you know what I mean? I think we're going to, oh, that's how it fits together. And right now, it's just a little too high for us to grasp. So, thanks. Those were the best questions ever to get to end on. because I, And I haven't even thought of it. But yeah, that's what I believe about the millennium right there. Is like, these are our best attempts from this perspective. And when we see what Christ has done, we're going to go, oh, why didn't I see that before? But none of us, none of us did. So, okay, uh, Lord, thank you for today and this time that we have gotten to enjoy. Lord, would you deepen our excitement and joy and anticipation for your return? Thank you that you are returning for us. We will spend eternity with you. Bless us now as we enjoy some fellowship, some food together, and then worship you uh, in the service in your name.